0: You're listening to Teachers Talk Radio with Tom Hopkins Burke. Your show will begin shortly. Tune in, talk it out. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6,
1: 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Nottingham, this is The Late Show with Tom Hopkins Burke.
0: Good evening and welcome to The Late Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Tom Hopkins-Burke. It's 8pm and tonight we are talking all things student presentation and organisation. Should we obsess over it? Should we hold teachers to account over it? Is our primary-secondary divide? Does it really matter? You can text in, call in or tweet
1: us with your thoughts. Join us live. Live! Live from Nottingham, this is The Late Show with Tom Hopkins-Burke on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
0: Welcome aboard the Saturday Late Show. Very good evening to you. My name is Tom hopkins and I'm delighted to be joining you tonight on a it's a slightly unusual occasion because I think this is my first ever Late Show. It's certainly my first ever Saturday Late Show. Um, normally you get to hear me these days on the Friday Late Late Show, but on this occasion I'm stepping in for Miss Sage. So if you were tuning in expecting to hear Miss Sage, who's a fantastic host, Do stick with me because I might not be as good as Miss Said, but hey, I'm still passable and we've got a great 90 minutes in store. Um, I'm delighted to say it is one year and six days since I hosted my very first Teacher's Talk radio show. Back then, it was a news hour. It lasted for 60 minutes, and it wasn't quite as clean-cut as it is these days. I remember getting to a 45-minute stage um, back on my very first show, back on the 13th of March 2021. And I remember panicking after 45 minutes because I've ran out of material, so I had to add lib the last 15 minutes. And then I got a message saying, you did quite well on your first show. And I was like, did I? So. That's quite a low bar, and I'm sure we can improve on that tonight. And uh, my very last show, which was at the end of February 2022, um, we talked about careers education. We had two fantastic guests from the world of careers education who spoke about their experiences in the careers sector, working in schools, working in universities, and the state of careers education in the four nations of the United Kingdom. Um, I am with you today and this time for one night only, of course, I've been entrusted with this prime time late show slot. and again, if you were tuning in tonight to listen to me, side then I'm very sorry, but you'll have to come back next week. Don't go anywhere, though, because I'm sure we will have a cracking 90 minutes. Tonight's show is all about student presentation and organisation, particularly when it comes to their written work. Should we obsess over it? Does it really matter? Does it link to improved outcomes? Should we be using it as a stick with which to beat teachers over the head? I would love to hear your thoughts, so please do contribute to tonight's late show how i hear you ask well there are three really good ways you can get involved option number one is to text in if you're listening live on podbean you have the option at the bottom of your screen to text in your message i will read your text live out loud and respond to it I particularly want to see some texts from people who disagree with me as well, so it's not just one continuous stream of thought, and we can set up a little bit of a dialogue where we can respond to each other and hopefully create a bit of a debate. At the bottom of your screen, um, in the bottom right, you can see a heart icon. Once you've been in the studio for five minutes or longer, if you press the heart, you can like the show, and I greatly appreciate all of your likes. At the bottom left, you can send us a gift. I'm not quite sure how that works, but you can certainly try. And you can also share, I think it's in the bottom right, you can share the show in your social networks um, to get more people listening and more people talking. And Wouldn't that be great? I want as many people listening live as possible, and I want to hear from as many people as possible tonight. Option number two is to call in. Um, Tom Rogers informed me yesterday that I am being sent 100 Teachers Talk Radio mugs to send to our wonderful callers. You make shows with your contributions and we want to reward you. So call in. Offer your thoughts and I can reward you with your very own Teachers Talk Radio mug. I have two mugs. I think I'm one of very few people with more than one. And my boss has one too. So that makes three Teachers Talk Radio mugs in our staff room. Can you beat us? Can you get more than three Teachers Talk Radio mugs in your staff room? Now is your chance to give it a go. And of course, option number three is to tweet us. If you are listening back on demand on our website, on Spotify on Apple Podcasts, or you just want to get involved after the show is finished. You listened live and you thought after the show. Hang on, I had this really, really good point to make about this particular issue then you can tweet us at ttradio2022, you can use the hashtag ttradio, you can tweet me at hb underscore history, you can tell me why I am wrong about everything we talk about tonight, you can send me cat gifs, you can send me your never-ending love and affection, you can send me the question papers for an Excel GCSE history this year, obviously that one's a joke, please don't take it seriously, please don't sack me, but send me whatever you like really. I want to network with as many teachers as possible on Teachers Talk Radio, on Podbean and on Twitter as well. I want Teachers Talk Radio to be as popular as it possibly can be. Um, before we start tonight by looking at our main topic of um, student presentation and organisation, I did want to have a look at some of the big headline stories in education over the past 48 hours. Um, carrying on with the theme of I've been presenting now for more than a year. Um, I started off with a Saturday news hour. I started off back in February 2021, um, as the Teachers Talk Radio newsreader. Since then, we've had Gail Glenn and Joe Fox, and Megan Goods take over as well, and they've been absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, back in the day, back in 2021, I was the newsreader, and so I had to keep an eye on all of the big news stories which were going on in the world of education. So I want to sort of do a throwback to that. You could call this the newspaper review. You can call it the News 5 Minutes, whatever you want. Um, if you've got any thoughts on my three stories which I've picked out from the education news then why not use those three options i just outlined you can text and you can call and you can tweet us um i don't think i could host tonight without mentioning child q and her horrifying treatment at the hands of police officers in case you aren't aware of this story and i think everybody in education is by now um Child Q, this refers to a 15-year-old black schoolgirl who was strip-searched by police having been pulled out of an exam in 2020, wrongly suspected of carrying cannabis, and her parents were not contacted. Um, The local Member of Parliament, um, Diane Abbott, said racism absolutely played a part in the strip-search, and a safeguarding report said that racism was likely a factor. It said that adultification bias had been a factor, where adults perceive black children as being older than they are because they see them as more streetwise. Child Q's family members said that she had gone from a happy-go-lucky girl to a timid recluse that hardly speaks. In 2020-21, to there were 25 searches of under-18s in Hackney Borough, of which just two were off white students, which gives um, credence to what Diane Abbott is saying and what other people have said about as well racism being a factor. The latest developments over the last few days are that Child Q is taking civil action against her school and is suing the Met police. She says that she wants cast iron commitments to ensure that this never happens again. Meanwhile, hundreds of people attended a protest organised by Hackney Cop Watch at Stoke Newington Police Station in Hackney and Mayor of London Sadiq Khan has written to the head of the police watchdog urging them to consider a case of gross misconduct. In Manchester, demonstrators gathered outside the central library with a chance of no police in schools, no justice, no peace and no more exclusions. The de- demonstration was organised in part by Northern Police Monitoring Project, or NPMP. Now, the Northern Police Monitoring Project has campaigned against the placement of 20 police officers stationed at Greater Manchester Schools. Now, I would be interested to know whether you think the conflation of safeguarding catastrophes, like what has happened to Child Q, should be conflated with a matter of exclusions, and what can be done to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again in our schools. There are people far more qualified than me, who I am sure will talk about this in future Teachers Talk radio shows. Now, um, Rebecca Omanira Oyakanmi wrote for the New Statesman today, and I found her words particularly poignant and particularly important when she said the following. Statistics and stories of rights violated and humanity erased aren't new. Rarely do they make a splash. The sad thing is that as a writer, often the most difficult thing, is getting readers to engage with these stories of black and brown people, having to persuade them that we are human in the first place. Child Q's mother puts this perfectly. Why doesn't my daughter deserve the same rights as every other child? Is this because they think she is a young girl with no respect for her parents or adults, no fear of consequences, or because she's a black child living in a poor city area? Child Q is a rare case, the public has recognised her humanity in retrospect, but hers is not an isolated case, and until we change the way we look at these stories, hers won't be the last. I think, yeah, it's very, very interesting, of course, that child Q is not the first case of this occurring or similar things occurring. If you do go and read the article, it goes through some other historic cases. And I think we've got a duty upon us to make sure it's not the last. And it shouldn't. And No, um, let me just correct myself. We've got a duty to make sure that it is the last, but it never happens again. So... I think there's an important discussion which needs to take place um about ensuring that this is the last time something like this happens in our schools and the steps on an institutional level that need to be taken to ensure that this is the case so that was i think the top story of the last 48 72 hours um i also found an interesting local news story about a school in bournemouth to do with red nose day it was published in the daily mirror and The story was that Livingston Academy in Bournemouth had been forced to apologise after sending an email threatening pupils with detention if they did not donate to comic relief. Parents were informed that children were expected to pay £1 to wear their regular clothes on Red Nose Day, and it added that those who wore casual clothes without donating would be held back after school. Now, headteacher Dr. Kim, Dr. Kimberly Elms has since apologised for the erroneous message and for causing undue worry and anxiety to parents. The email said, we will accept donations tomorrow. However, anyone in Mufti who has not donated £1 towards Red Nose Day will be subject to an SLT detention tomorrow after school. First of all, he won, of course, at a Mufti Day. And secondly, what do you think about this? It tells you a lot about non-uniform days, I think. Should we scrap them for good? There are people who would get rid of school uniform if they could. It's a debate which we had in the very, very early days of Teachers Talk Radio, in sort of the first three or four months of our experience. I remember us having a couple of shows about school uniform and whether or not we should scrap it completely in schools. Obviously, back in the day when I did all of the news stories, I reported on the um, private members bill by Mike Amesbury MP, which proposed to make school uniforms cheaper, which I believe comes into force for the first time in September of this year. Um, I personally think that while I acknowledge the reasons why people would scrap school uniforms in schools, I do think personally that uniform is a great social leveller in our schools. Of course, uniform literally means the same as my year 10 students who have been learning about the act of uniformity recently know all too well. And I noticed yesterday um, that when year nine had their assembly in non-uniform, there were three or four rows which would normally be filled that were not. And to me, there was a clear link, whether it was correlation or causation, between student absence and a non-uniform day and we're not a particularly deprived school I imagine it's worse elsewhere it's a fascinating topic this idea of should we keep non-uniform days should be scrapped? non-uniform days should they be more regular should they be less regular should non-uniform be used as a reward if not all students can benefit from that reward it's a really interesting topic and one which I'm sure will be discussed on shows in the future so that was my second story about the school which would put students into a one hour SLT detention if they didn't pay a pound for comic relief, and then my f- the final story I want to discuss before we move on to our main topic is about young carers, and I think this is a particularly important. Um, issue. We talk a lot about who the disadvantaged pupils are in our schools. We talk about pupil premium, we talk about special educational needs, we talk about EHCPs, we talk about looked after students. But I think one group of students who we miss out on is young carers. I don't think they are as high profile as they should be in our schools when we talk about who the disadvantaged students are now the carers trust has reported that two children in every classroom are taking on some form of caring responsibility at home and this is making them feel lonely exhausted and burned out our young carers sacrifice things which other children their age would not Too often, they aren't going out um, at the weekends or in evenings with their friends at school. Too often, they are sacrificing homework and out-of-class learning to look after relatives. According to the Carers Trust, more than half, 53%, of young carers and young adult carers said the amount of time they spent caring per week had increased in the past year. At least a third of respondents said their caring role resulted in them either always or usually feeling worried – 36%, lonely – 33% or stressed – 42%. And 52% of young carers and young adults carers responding to the survey said they never or not often received support from their school, college or university in balancing studying with their caring role. Now, I want to know, what does your school do to support young carers? It's something I thought very carefully about. We have break time and lunchtime drop-in sessions. We run a breakfast club, 8.10 to 8.40am every day for all of our young carers. Is it enough? It's an interesting question. I'd be really interested to know what your school does to meet the needs of young carers. I teach several young carers myself, and I find myself being much more lenient when it comes to homework completion, for example. And I can't help but notice when they're tied when they haven't had much sleep the night before, especially when I teach them first thing in the morning or last thing in the afternoon, it really stands out to me. And I just think to myself, are the young carers in our classrooms really getting the best deal possible? It's a really, really interesting discussion. So I've discussed those three news stories. Um, The first one, of course, about Child Q. Um, The second one about the school in in Bournemouth, which was going to put students into a one hour detention for not paying a quid for non-uniform for comic relief before having to backtrack under parental pressure. And then finally, the sacrifices which young carers are making and how they are becoming more worried, lonely or stressed, um, especially in the last year. If you have thoughts on any of those three stories, then please do text in, please do call in, please do tweet us as well. Um, As a reminder for Twitter, you can tweet us at TT Radio 2022 and you can use the hashtag TT Radio. Um, Yeah, have a think about those stories. We're going to hear the weekend news now from Gail Glenn um, and we're going to hear a word from our sponsors as well. So do not go anywhere and I'll see you in about eight minutes.
2: Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewonderlettersandsounds.org.uk
1: Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy to use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at BulbApp.com
2: Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you, providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out. Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs.
1: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: The Scottish Conservatives have called for Curriculum for Excellence to be axed. Oliver Mundell, Scottish Tory education spokesman said, Scotland's education system used to rank among the best in the world before the SNP came to power. We should return to the strong, traditional, teacher-led approach that gave so many of us who went to our local school a decent start in life. Quality." knowledge-rich universal education is at the heart of being Scottish we pride ourselves on being a nation of innovators entrepreneurs and thinkers we are at risk of losing all that if we keep sticking to the same distinctly un-Scottish approach that has seen our schools plummet down international league tables a report in December found one in four primary school pupils to reach expected standards in reading and numeracy. In Tanzania, extensive collaboration between the Ministry of Education, Science and Technology and local government has resulted in an education sector plan. For the first time in Tanzania, the plan provides an overarching framework within which the plans and budgets of all implementing agencies must be set and aligned to. The new ASP highlights two key policy initiatives. Firstly, Tanzania's commitment to providing 12 years of free and compulsory basic education to the entire population leaving no one behind and the progressive expansion of technical and vocational education and training to provide Tanzania with the pool of skilled human resources needed to advance to becoming a semi-industrialised middle-income country by 2025. Since the Government of Tanzania started implementing a fee-free basic education policy in 2016, Enrollment has increased in basic education and the number of out-of-school children has decreased. The education plan recognises that increasing school access while simultaneously improving learning outcomes will present a major challenge for the country. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
1: This is Two Minute
4: Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at fake news and scammers. We all know what a scammer is, but do we really know what fake news is? The NSPCC website explains fake news in an easy-to-understand way if you want to look a little deeper. However, basically, it's disinformation as opposed to misinformation. Misinformation shared without knowledge or intent to harm, disinformation is shared intentionally. Fake news is nothing new, but for most it's seen as a propaganda or a political tools to influence opinion. However, it's becoming more popular with scammers. I decided to see what happens when you actually follow a fake news advert. I've noticed recently popular social media apps and search engine adverts encouraging investment in cryptocurrency. One ad caught my eye as I was looking at the news headlines on a popular browser. It read, Elon Musk invests 12 million in a new trading platform. I trusted the search engine, so I clicked on the link. Because let's face it, anything Elon invests in is worth looking at. I was taken to a website showing how the company Bitcoin Motion had created an investment robot that invests When bitcoin climbs and sells when bitcoin falls because bitcoin is a massively volatile currency you can earn a large profit in a very short time it sounds almost too good to be true on the site there's a report where elon himself tells a popular american news presenter to invest 250 dollars and within eight minutes she's made a profit of hundred dollars scrolling down there were testimonials from dragon's den money supermarket and other well-known established names Next, a button to fill in a simple web form to sign up. I spent some time researching Bitcoin Motion. It was clearly fake. All endorsers had published statements saying they were nothing to do with it. So I signed up. Within 30 seconds I had a phone call from another company called PhenoFX. FX. Strangely though, there was a distinctive call transfer noise, a silence before the connection. Why? If they phoned me? Hello. Hello.
3: Hey,
2: good Am I speaking to Mr. Steve? Steve what?
4: That's me. Steve, you're speaking to for- only from uh you know, Fx, how been that. and i was called mr steve i should have hung up anyway i was then time pressured so i didn't miss out to give the big long number across my credit card which i didn't do so i was sent a whatsapp message with a secure payment link again i was pushed to open it on my cell phone and pay i made my excuses and ended the call a further five messages and calls some from london some from sheffield came never leaving a message the whatsapp saying i see you've not made your transaction I'm calling to assist you. The recording I have is my final call with the supposed investment company. On the 20th of March at 8pm on Tom Rogers' show, we're going to listen to this and discuss the topic. Why not join us? I'm going to leave you with a final thought. I was told to look at the website and see there was a padlock showing it was safe. The padlock and certificate is proof your connection is encrypted. It's not proof of how trustworthy the person on the other end is. Anyone can buy an SSL certificate. Please be careful. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was two minute tech two minute tech with Steve Woods your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio
1: live from Nottingham this is The Late Show with Tom Hopkins-Burke
0: it is, it is the Saturday Late Show with me, Tom hopkins It's the 19th of March and it's 8.28 p.m. We've discussed some of the biggest news stories in education the last four, two or three days and it's now time to move on to the main course tonight. It's a discussion about student presentation and organisation. Does it really matter? Should we care? I want to know what you think. So calling and texting live. Live.
1: Live from Nottingham, this is The Late Show with Tom Hopkins-Burke on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. I think we
0: should launch a competition to see who the best dancer to a Teachers Talk Radio theme tune is. And I think we should give them not one but two Teachers Talk Radio mugs. If you're listening, you think that's a good idea, then why not tweet us at TT Radio 2022? I must say Big thank you, of course, to all of our sponsors, um, Slack, um, to um, Bulb, to Oxford, um, fan- some fantastic, fantastic um, resources and products available there. Um, and also a big shout-out to Steve Woods, whose two-minute tech I find to be one of the best parts of any Teachers Talk Radio show. And in particular, clarifying this difference between misinformation and disinformation, I think that's really, really interesting, and something which I'm certainly going to be taking to my classroom and as a history teacher of course you know we are developing the skills required amongst our students to be able to sort misinformation or disinformation from veracity and it's something which I think is very important. I think it's something which history offers uniquely as a discipline um, to actually helping sort disinformation from veracity. So, yeah, really, really interesting. And you will hear again from our sponsors at some point in this show, and you'll hear from Steve again with his two-minute tech. You will, of course, hear from Steve Woods on Monday. Um, he's going to be on Tom Rogers' morning break at 11 a.m., and he's going to be showing some very interesting insights there. Um so yeah, let's move on to our main course, our main topic for discussion. Underline your date and title. Use a ruler. Don't draw in pen. Tables in pencil. Is that your neatest handwriting? How often do you have that discussion and ask that sort, those sorts of questions with the students in your classes? Do you think that students should obsess over the presentation in their exercise books and the organisation of their notes? Or do you think that students should spend less time thinking about presentation and more time focusing on the quality of the content of their work? Or do you think it's a false dichotomy and students can do both? If learning and thinking is messy and if students are doing challenging work, do we have to accept that students will make mistakes and that work is going to be scruffy and are we going to accept that or is there another way? Is this something we should obsess over? It's a really, really interesting topic for discussion, and we can break it down into lots of different sub-questions and lots of different sub-themes, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. If you have any thoughts on student presentation, on student organisation, then remember, there are three ways to get involved. You can text us, um, podbean in the live studio you can call into the live studio on podbean and you can tweet us at tt radio 2022 using the hashtag tt radio or you can tweet me personally at hb underscore history i want to think about why some students struggle with the presentation of their books and how we can help them and there are i think a few reasons why they might struggle it might be there's an SEND need there. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that actually a special educational need or a diagnosis will lead to scruffy work. It may not, in the case of dyspraxia, it may well do. I teach some dyspraxic pupils, and certainly they struggle with that organization. They struggle with a presentation in their books. They struggle with handwriting, and handwriting something I'm going to come on to later as well. So there's that side. And on the other hand, though, you have students, and I find particularly but not exclusively students with an ASD diagnosis who are perfectionists in terms of their presentation. And they tend sometimes, not all of the time, to be afraid or reluctant to make a mistake in their books. And that often means they don't want to put pen to paper because they may go wrong so it's not a one-size-fits-all problem this but i did think about some of the strategies which i have used in the past and use at the moment to help students with a presentation of their books now we do a formal assessment in history in our school um once every half term and so if students have completed their assessment feedback after that One thing which I suggest is they go back through their book for the last however many lessons and they just make sure that all of their dates and titles are underlined and that all of the sheets are stuck in because it's something which I think, you know, we can do a little bit of a mop up and just make sure that we check through standards. And there is, I suppose, an expectation that as teachers, certainly in these post-COVID times, if we can call it that, that we are circulating around the classroom that we're checking that all students are underlining their dates and titles, that all students are sticking in their sheets. But actually, I don't think it's possible to check every single student's date and title in every single lesson. And I think if we are, then we may be missing some other things as well, which we need to be looking out for. So having that mop-up, I think, is quite important. Another thing you can do, particularly with students, perhaps with... um, s-e-n-d is giving them visual checklists um perhaps on mini whiteboards or on a post-it note saying underline the date underline your title stick in this sheet stick in this sheet write this subheading and doing that in terms of a Checklist and aid memoir may be able to help those students. It may take away some of that um, working memory capacity if they have it in a checklist in front of them. It's also important to students as teachers that we have glue sticks and scissors to hand and even spare pens and perhaps even spare pencils, um, although that may be subject dependent. Now, the problem is, I don't have one classroom i move from room to room i could probably work out how many rooms i teach in over a course or a week it's not as many as it used to be it may only be three now it's probably not actually no it's four but actually if i look at my designated so my so-called designated classroom i spend less than half of my teaching time in there so yes i can have glue sticks and scissors in that room but Do I really want to be taking them with me? Sometimes I have to. So one thing that we do as a faculty, as a department, is we have our workroom. And here we have stores of glue sticks and we have stores of scissors and we have stores of colouring pencils because geography is included with us and they do a lot of colouring in. And we can take them from room to room so long as we take them and then bring them back straight afterwards. So having that sort of... Organization beyond the individual teacher level, I think, is very important in terms of promoting high standards of student presentation. Um, I also like to think, and I, this is something which helps me with the so called perfectionists, and it's not just those um, students with SEND needs, um, but it's other students as well, that actually we can use perhaps mini whiteboards as a drafting tool, getting students to write down ideas first on mini whiteboards to practice on mini whiteboards before then transferring that to writing in their book. I've seen a few people on Twitter recently, I can't remember who off the top of my head, talking about draft exercise books and neat exercise books. And I see the point of that about having a neat book and a draft book. But I wonder who that is for. And again, that's something we'll come on and discuss later. Um, Why not just have one book and have messy work and neat work, you know, messy work where the student is thinking, where the student is being challenged, where the student may be entering that sort of struggle with their learning and then needs to demonstrate what they've learnt in a nice, neat way. I also wonder whether there is a gender divide when it comes to presentation of work this might be a bit sloppy of me it might be a sloppy generalization but i tend to find that boys struggle with neatness more than gals but i also find that girls have a tendency to be more perfectionist over their work than boys i also find that boys struggle to organize their folders um so for example at gcse and a level we have folders we have booklets we don't have exercise books i found in my own experience but it's the boys who struggle more with that organization than the girls. Now that may be a sloppy oversimplification or generalization. I'd love to know what you think, whether or not there is a gender divide when it comes to the organization and presentation of student work in exercise books. So why not tweet us at TT Radio 2022 if you think I'm talking rubbish. If we acknowledge but for whatever reason we need to set high expectations with student presentation it's worth thinking how we do that now i've mentioned some strategies about you know at a department or a faculty level having resources available to give to students who need them some people some teachers say that you need to set your presentation expectations high during the first lesson of the school year, and take time out to set out what it is exactly you want students to be doing to make their books neat. Um, for example, modelling exactly how students should set out their work in exercise books, where they should put the date, where should they should put in the title, where they should stick in sheets, how they should stick in sheets. Are they folding it, or are they? St- Trimmed down to stick in neatly. And our head of geography, who's a marvelous teacher, um, is a pro at this. She uses her visualizer. She holds up books. She draws on the whiteboard exactly how students should organise their work. And if you look at her books, they're beautiful. You no know, sheets hanging up sides. Lovely student presentation. Students taking pride in their work. Maybe not every single student, but a vast majority, and certainly much more than me. It's also got me thinking this about. Actually, whether or not teacher organisation and teacher presentation and teacher handwriting matters. Do teachers need to think about our own handwriting? How neat or how scruffy is our board work? How neat or how scruffy are our written comments in books should we need to do them, or our feedback we've given on assessments? Does this communicate high expectations, low expectations? Does it matter? Am I talking rubbish? Is obsessing over the handwriting of teachers really something we need to be doing? Now, I mean, I've got an interesting perspective on this, in that my handwriting, since from a very young age, has consistently been terrible. I could have trained to be a doctor with the rubbishness if that's a word with the inadequacy if that's much better with the inadequacy of my handwriting back when i was at primary school we now all know what a pen license was if our handwriting if our work was neat enough we'd be given a pen license in year six we would no longer have to write in pencil and we could write in pen i never got my pen license i never got the opportunity at primary school to write in a pen my other feedback at parents evening was that i was bright and i was doing very 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 well but i needed to think about my organization and my presentation and my handwriting now i got straight a stars at gcse that's a bit of a flex i suppose and i got straight a's at a level and actually i think back to my a level history when i was at sixth form and i think about just how neat and just how organised my notes were, particularly in year 13, particularly my exercise book for civil rights, where my notes were as neat as you possibly could. And I wonder, I look back and I think to myself, I only got an A at A level history. I could have got an A star. And I ask myself, was obsessing over how i bullet pointed lists or which colors i used for which points or what abbreviations i used for whatever they may words may have been was my preoccupation with that something which was detrimental to actually getting that a star which i probably did which i wanted to get and was very disappointed but i didn't get it's an interesting force, and one which I've been thinking about for many a year afterwards and it's one which I think about with my students as well. I can think of a few of my A-level students in particular whose folders, whose books are incredibly disorganised, incredibly disorganised but I look at the quality of their written work, I look at the quality of their essays, I look at the quality of their timed work and I think to myself these students are exactly where I want them to be. Grade A, grade A star. So should I be picking up on the lack of organisation, or should I not? If I get them to spend 25 to 30 minutes organising their folder, is that time they could be using to do something else? And could it cost them a high grade? Because we talk, you know, I wonder if there's a correlation between students being organised and students presenting their work nicely and students getting a high grade. I'm not entirely sure there is. I don't know what the research is. I had a good look and I couldn't find much. And it's something which we'll talk about later as well in terms of whether or not presentation is a proxy, is a good proxy for learning. It's an interesting thought, really, about actually if students. Aren't that organised and if students' presentation isn't that great, but the quality of the content of their work is top notch, should we be worried? My view is no, we shouldn't be worried, but I'd love to know what you think as well. Another question which I thought about when I was putting this show together is whether or not we should reward children for using neat presentation and for being organised with their work. And it's a question which we can break down even further. It's a question that requires us to think about a number of issues, firstly, what are rewards for? What purpose do they serve? Secondly, is neat presentation a requirement in which case should we be rewarding it? Was it a bonus? Is it something which a cherry on top of a cake? Thirdly, if we think students neat presentation and organization it's worth rewarding. How do we do that? Do we praise in front of a whole class? Do we hold up exercise books as an example of the standard we expect? Or do we praise in private? Do we write a nice comment in their book saying, I like how organised your work is. I like how neat your handwriting is. Well done. So this issue about whether we should reward children using neat presentations is an interesting one. And again, I'd love to know what you think. Is it something that you would support or would you oppose? And of course, you can text in, you can call in, you can tweet us at TT Radio 2022 with your thoughts about whether we should reward children for using neat presentation. My view is, no, probably not. Because if we treat neat presentation as the minimum standard, then I don't think we should be rewarding for minimum standard, it's my personal view that actually rewards and bonuses and merits and things like that should be given for going above and beyond, not just for getting the basics right. And so I think if we reward children for using neat presentation, yes, we incentivise it. But then we treat it as something which is beyond the ordinary. And I think we should be treated as an ordinary. It should be treated as a thank you, not as a well done. But then the flip side comes. If students are doodling, if students are messy, if students have drawn whatever it may be on an exercise book or on a folder, is that something to be ignored? Is it something to be corrected? Is it something to be sanctioned? And what message do we send? If we ignore things like doodling, if we ignore messy work, we promote what we permit and we permit what we promote. And if we ignore messy work, if we ignore doodling, if we ignore those sorts of things, then we're permitting and we are promoting it by proxy, by default. So perhaps it's something that we should sanction. Now, how do we sanction that? Do we get students to repeat their work on a new page at home in school time in detention what does it look like does parental communication need to occur or is it something we don't need to get our knickers in a twist about it's a really really interesting question actually we've been picked up as a school as a department just for ensuring that our students aren't doodling. And we've been told to sanction, we've been told to set negative points for students who do doodle. But again, I think back to my old school experiences and I was a fidgeter, I could never keep still, you know, and I would doodle in the margins of my exercise books. I would do that, not because I was bored, And not because I didn't care about the presentation of my work, but because it was a method of me focusing and of me paying attention, of me listening and... It was something which I felt I needed to do. Now, perhaps I could have done it on scrap paper instead of in the margin of my book. Perhaps I could have done it at the back of my book. But for me, it's something which works. And for other students, I know it works. Doodling works as a way of keeping focus. Now, there will be some people out there who say that doodling doesn't work. And that actually, you know, students should have their hands free of any pens while the teachers talking. And they should be sat bolt upright and they should be li- looking at them. And I appreciate that as a catch-all, as a generalism, but I was a doodler, and I enjoyed doodling, and it helped me focus, and my grades weren't that bad. So it's an interesting debate and an interesting discussion. Another thing I want to think about is handwriting. Handwriting is an interesting one. It's something which I discussed a short while back as well. Um, Handwriting is interesting, and I want you to think about this quote From a 2016 teaching and learning blog, it says, When children use their neatest handwriting, they're demonstrating that they have achieved a great deal of satisfaction from the way they present their work. They are proud of the progress that they are making within lessons. Also, neat handwriting suggests that children have thought carefully about their work instead of rushing through it as quickly as they can. I want to know your thoughts on that. If children are using their neatest handwriting, are they demonstrating the satisfaction in which they present their work? Are they proud of their progress? And if they're not using their neatest handwriting, are they not proud of their progress? I want to know what you think about that. So again, text in, call in, tweet us at TT Radio 2022. Alex Quigley wrote a blog post at the start of last year called "Should We Worry About Handwriting?" and it says the following. My nine-year-old boy Noah has been working hard on his handwriting this week. He fizzes with ideas when he writes. But most often his handwriting and his spelling simply cannot keep up. You can see the sheer physicality of his writing as he shifts and squirms on his chair, each thought sparking a shuffle of stray arms and jittering legs. Understandably, given he spent more time working from home than in the classroom since March, he simply hasn't practised writing as much as he would have done in school. Though he has the privilege of technology to hand, his typing speed is pretty sharp. His writing stamina and his handwriting has slipped somewhat. He is not alone. Ofsted indicate a loss of writing skill and stamina was an issue when talking to schools during the pandemic. When you hear the refrain, oh, handwriting doesn't matter, we have laptops, voice recognition technology, and more, you could be forgiven for thinking handwriting doesn't matter, but it does. Lots of research by psychologists builds a clear picture that handwriting matters a great deal to writing and learning. It is much more than neat presentation or the flourish of a signature. Studies with young children have shown for when writing was composed by hand, children generated more words and more quickly with more ideas than when typing on a t- keyboard. Research also indicates that older students are more effective when they make notes by hand than when we do when they do so on their laptop. We should care a great deal about the access to technology for pupils right now, but we should not assume that access to technology guarantees effective learning. Indeed, with a potential over-reliance on tech, some key skills may slip through disuse. Writing experts have also shown that handwriting is a crucial foundation for writing success. The writer effect reveals that unless handwriting is fluent and automatic, it interferes with the act of skilled writing. For Noah, along with many pupils, handwriting effort can take up too much mental bandwidth. As a result, spelling slips, punctuation goes awry, and meaning-making is compromised. Put simply, the better your handwriting and the more automatic, the more you can focus your mental energy on picking the right words, playing with sentence structures and much more. The notion of just ignoring handwriting legibility and going the easy route could actually inhibit more effective methods of writing and learning. Not only is writing foundational for skilled writing, there is a real presentation effect too. That is to say, that judgments of teachers and pupils are influenced by legible handwriting and correct spelling. Potentially two equally effective pieces of writing could be judged differently by a teacher or an examiner. Handwriting Matters. Speed and legibility of handwriting may soon matter more than ever before. Interesting blog post. And I want to dissect some parts of it. So, Ofsted has indicated that a loss of writing skill and stamina was an issue when talking to schools. That's something I've noticed. Particularly among my year 10 starting their GCSE courses, whose last full school year was in year 7. And the year 12s I teach, whose last full school year was in year 9. I found that in timed conditions, students are writing less in less depth but also they're writing less on their paper and i've noticed that for some students the gap the difference has been profound and that if you compare them to previous cohorts they're likely to pick up fewer marks simply because their hands cannot keep up with the amount they are expected to write in a subject like history i'm sure it's a similar subject in similar situation as a subject like english too and i've been fascinated by these studies which show that actually handwritten handwritten notes stick more than hand typed notes when i was at university in my first half a year i handwrote my notes but after that i typed everything up now what i found was in exams where i had to handwrite I actually really struggled to write enough in the time. And in three hours, my hand really, really hurt in my final year exams. I think it's interesting, actually, and I think there's a similarity which has taken place amongst secondary students who have been typing a lot of their work in lo- in, the two lockdown, um, in the two lockdowns we've had, in the two school closures we've had. And I think there's been a real struggle to get back up to speed with handwriting. And perhaps those students who have written more by hand have actually lost less of the writing stamina, which students need to succeed in exams. Um, So, yeah, Alex Quigley's effect was really interesting blog post was really interesting, but presentation effect as well, really interesting. This idea that the judgments of teachers and pupils are influenced by legible handwriting, correct spelling. I have students whose handwriting is lovely and neat, but is it legible? No. Do I judge them? Yes. Do I get more frustrated by their writing? Yes. And I'm sure I'm far from the only teacher who thinks that. And I tell them, your examiner is not spending that long on a script, and if they can't read it, they won't credit you. So you need to make sure your handwriting is legible for the examiner. And that is a message I could say time and time again. It's interesting. Interesting. And I agree with Alex quickly, that handwriting instruction will make a big difference to people who need it. However, at Teachers Talk Radio, we like to present alternate views, and so Diana Little wrote this alternative view on handwriting back in 2016, pre-COVID. When entering their first classes of a semester, students are often apprehensive as they wait to hear the professor's policy on laptops in class. While insisting on handwritten notes, It's not the norm at McGill. Some professors nonetheless present students with articles and studies that explain how writing notes by hand improves memory, helps with the absorption of information, and is generally the best way to become a successful student. The campus culture that classifies handwritten notes as best or simply better than typed notes homogenises education and labels a student's learning process as either right or wrong while taking notes by hand benefits some, possibly even most students, insisting upon it can create stressful and even inhospitable learning environments. Despite its alleged positive impact on memory, handwriting notes lacks the accessibility of computers. While professors make exceptions for students with learning and physical disabilities, simply having messy or slow handwriting can disadvantage a student in the classroom those accustomed to typing their notes, taking notes by hand can be a gruelling process that actually inhibits the absorption of information. Given that today's students type much faster than they can write, handwritten notes often devolve into a game of catch-up with a professor. If students have to put most of their focus towards maintaining the professor's speed, simply writing the words down takes priority over what the professor is actually saying. These frantic notes may be messy, disorganised, and barely legible. Whereas computer programmes can be extremely useful in organising important subjects and trains of thought, a student struggling to keep up with a professor likely doesn't have the time to even write legibly, let alone highlight information. This chaotic transcription of a lecture can ultimately leave a student feeling stressed or disoriented, neither of which our optimal mental states for retaining course material in an attempt to limit distractions and help students succeed a professor may not realize the alternatively detrimental learning environment that insistence on handwritten notes creates this possibility of distraction like someone surfing Facebook, does not necessarily want a laptop ban, especially when one considers how teaching methods have evolved to incorporate and even benefit from t- digital media. Professors employ a variety of digital aids, such as PowerPoints, music, videos and images to augment their lessons. The shift towards a digital classroom recognises that students learn in a variety of ways. It then goes on to talk about learning styles, and I'm not going to read out the bit about learning styles because even though we acknowledge a range of different views, we all know that learning styles are bunk. Learning is a highly individual process. Just as a mode of presentation affects how a student absorbs information, so does a way a student takes notes. Just because a student takes notes on a computer does not make him or her a poor, ineffectual learner. Students should be encouraged and allowed for freedom to discover which learning methods work best for them, rather than adhering to someone else's definition of proper learning. So you've got two very different views there. You've got Quigley and you've got Little. I'd like to know which one you prefer which one you agree with more whether or not we should be making those reasonable adjustments or adaptations for students to help them write better with laptops with Chromebooks etc etc because it's something that I do it's something that teachers in our school do we do give students access to devices to type their work as a way of actually helping them as a way of making a reasonable adjustment should it be something which is rolled out more does your school have a bring your own device policy? Do your students, all of your students, make notes on laptops, on iPads, on de- computers, on devices, whatever they may be? And actually, are they keeping an, are they keeping their memories ticking over? Is stuff going into their long-term memory if it's being typed rather than being handwritten? It's an interesting debate. I want to know which side you are on. And while we listen to our news again, I want you to think about that and tweet us at TT Radio 2022.
1: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEM education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more.
2: Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the program for you With a Slack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs.
1: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: The Scottish Conservatives have called for Curriculum for Excellence to be axed. Oliver Mundell, Scottish Tory education spokesman said, Scotland's education system used to rank among the best in the world before the SNP came to power. We should return to the strong, traditional, teacher-led approach that gave so many of us who went to our local school a decent start in life. Quality, knowledge-rich, universal education is at the heart of being Scottish. We pride ourselves on being a nation of innovators, entrepreneurs and thinkers. We are at risk of losing all that if we keep sticking to the same distinctly unscottish approach that has seen our schools plummet down international league tables. A report in December found one in four primary school pupils to reach expected standards in reading and numeracy. In Tanzania, extensive collaboration between the Ministry of Education, Science and Technology and local government has resulted in an Education Sector Plan For the first time in Tanzania, the plan provides an overarching framework within which the plans and budgets of all implementing agencies must be set and aligned to. The new ASP highlights two key policy initiatives. Firstly, Tanzania's commitment to providing 12 years of free and compulsory basic education to the entire population, leaving no one behind, and the progressive expansion of technical and vocational education and training to provide Tanzania with the pool of skilled human resources needed to advance to becoming a semi-industrialized, middle-income country by 2025. Since the Government of Tanzania started implementing a fee-free basic education policy in 2016, enrolment has increased in basic education and the number of out of school children has decreased. The education plan recognises that increasing school access while simultaneously improving learning outcomes will present a major challenge for the country. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
1: This is Two Minute
4: Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at fake news and scammers. We all know what a scammer is, but do we really know what fake news is? The NSPCC website explains fake news in an easy to understand way if you want to look a little deeper. However, basically it's disinformation as opposed to misinformation. Misinformation is shared without knowledge or intent to harm. Disinformation is shared intentionally. Fake news is nothing new, but for most it's seen as a propaganda or a political Tools to influence opinion. However, it's becoming more popular with scammers. I decided to see what happens when you actually follow a fake news advert. I've noticed recently popular social media apps and search engine adverts encouraging investment in cryptocurrency. One ad caught my eye as I was looking at the news headlines on a popular browser. It read, Elon Musk invests 12 million in a new trading platform. I trusted the search engine, so I clicked on the link. Because let's face it, anything Elon invests in is worth looking at. I was taken to a website showing how the company Bitcoin Motion had created an investment robot that investment and Bitcoin climbs and sells when Bitcoin falls, because Bitcoin is a massively volatile currency you can earn a large profit in a very short time. It sounds almost too good to be true. On the site, there's a report where Elon himself tells a popular American news presenter to invest $250, and within eight minutes, she's made a profit of $100. Scrolling down, there were testimonials from Dragon's Den, Money Supermarket, and other well-known established names. Next, a button to fill in a simple web form to sign up. I spent some time researching Bitcoin Motion. It was clearly fake. All endorsers had published statements saying they were nothing to do with it. So, I signed up. Within 30 seconds, I had a phone call from another company called FX. Strangely, though, there was a distinctive call transfer noise, a silence before the connection. Why, if they phoned me? Hello? Hello?
3: Hi, hey, today, am I speaking to Mr. Steve? Steve, what?
4: That's me. Steve, you're speaking to... Morning from uh, How are doing this morning, sir? and i was called mr steve i should have hung up anyway i was then time pressured so i didn't miss out to give the big long number across my credit card which i didn't do so i was sent a whatsapp message with a secure payment link again i was pushed to open it on my cell phone and pay i made my excuses and ended the call a further five messages and calls some from london some from sheffield came never leaving a message the whatsapp saying i see you've not made your transaction I'm calling to assist you. The recording I have is my final call with the supposed investment company. On the 20th of March at 8pm on Tom Rogers' show, we're going to listen to this and discuss the topic. Why not join us? I'm going to leave you with a final thought. I was told to look at the website and see there was a padlock showing it was safe. The padlock and certificate is proof your connection is encrypted. It's not proof of how trustworthy the person on the other end is. Anyone can buy an SSL certificate. Please be careful. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was two. Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
0: Yes, I did do a little dance there to my transition music. Now, are you a history teacher? I have some very exciting news for the history teachers here listening to these shows. Next Saturday is Teach Me History Icons. I'm delighted to announce that I will be covering proceedings on behalf of Teachers Talk Radio. Um, so if you are in Manchester next Saturday, look out for me. I'll be waving a multicoloured LED microphone, probably in your face, um, and you can talk to me and share your thoughts on the day and it will be broadcast on our twitter account at some stage and possibly even on my teachers talk radio show so yeah do you get involved and do come and talk um, to teachers talk radio in manchester next saturday we've been talking about presentation we've been talking about organization um i want to talk about two questions before we wrap up tonight firstly should the presentation of student books play a part in teacher scrutiny, learning walks, quality assurance and even appraisal. And my second question is, does good presentation mean good grades? Is there correlation? Is there causation? Let's start with the first one then. Should presentation play a part in teacher scrutiny and in performance management? Should the presentation of student books be used as a stick with which to beat teachers around the head now given the phrasing of my second que- of that question there you probably know what i think but if you think it's important then please do call in please do text in please do tweet us um my view is that observers quite often slt who focus on the presentation of student books do so because they aren't qualified enough to talk about the content the subject specific content of students books and so talk instead about what they look like so you have a non-history specialist looking at a history book doesn't understand the history thinking which is taking place through the students work and so thinks about what they look like instead um one of the people whose thoughts i love to read generally speaking is christian shank's probably because he's a head of history now in 2020 he wrote this and i'd love to know if you agree with this exercise books have become a key component of the de-skilling of a profession over the last 10 years or so in my view increasingly they've become a tool to control teachers rather than just a place where students do their work many of the other idiotic policies that still permeate a large number of schools all rely on the exercise book and they've become a huge distractor from the core business of good teaching and learning. So, does a focus on presentation distract from the core business of good teaching and learning? And if so, how? It's interesting, it leads into another sub-question. What is the exercise book for? Who is it for? Is it for the student? Is it for the teacher? Is it for the outside observer? is it for someone else entirely? Now, I think when it comes to this question, We can reasonably infer that when most books in the class are neat, we can infer that the teacher insists on high standards of presentation. That, I suppose, is a good thing. But I don't think it's particularly reliable when it comes to learning walks, when it comes to book scrutinies. A couple of weeks ago, I was learning walked, if that's a verb, by my um, curriculum leader, my boss's boss, with a predetermined focus on student presentation. We were given plenty of notice. We knew we'd be seen with Key Stage 3, but we weren't told which class. And we were told that students with poor presentation would be challenged there and then. But, of course, the teacher wouldn't be challenged in front of the kids. Now, I have four Key Stage 3 classes at the moment. And I knew that there was only one class that I could actually be seen with because it matched up with the three periods of one of my potential observers. The others didn't. Lovely Year 7 class on a Tuesday morning. Now, of course, we spent the first 20 minutes of the lesson going back through the books, underlining all the dates and all the titles and sticking in any loose sheets. It didn't actually take 20 minutes, it only took about five minutes. And when their books got looked at, they couldn't find a single thing wrong. Boxes ticked. But would it be the same story had they come to see my year nines, my dodgy year nines, on a Friday period five? Absolutely not. They'd have seen some shoddy work, to be honest, and I'd have probably been pulled into an office to have a conversation about it at the end of the day. And this is a big problem with using student presentation in books as a yardstick with which to measure teachers. There are so many variables at play, like the class or the class is chosen, the students chosen, the time of day that don't make it particularly reliable, and with one class you may receive nothing but praise, but with another class it may be a completely different story. That's my view, I'm open to alternative views, please do call and text in, text and tweet us and let me know. And then we've got this other question, does good presentation equate to good grades, is there correlation? Is presentation a valid proxy for learning? Can we say that students aren't achieving well because of their presentation? Now, Tom Sherrington argued in a 2017 blog post that presentation is a good proxy for student progress. He argued the following. Pride in your work fuels a sense of self-worth. It feels good to produce something that looks good. It matters. Presenting your work well shows that you care that you are bothered. This fuels positive engagement with teachers, which helps you to learn. Your ideas have value and so people need to be able to read them. This matters. Clarity is important in presenting ideas, explanations and descriptions. Precision matters in punctuation, so the meaning of what you are saying is clear. There is likely to be a connection between neat writing and accurate writing. There are standards for writing every Key Stage 2 teacher will know and that secondary teachers should match. Precision matters in diagrams so that you can make good mental models for concepts. Precision matters a great deal in setting up mathematical problems to avoid errors. For example, with column addition, rearranging equations, and graphical solutions. It is these messages that then, over time, lead to greater engagement, more commitment, and ultimately deeper understanding. So Tom Sherrington does think that student presentation is a good proxy for learning. I wonder how far you agree with that. I certainly know I've spoken to some teachers on Twitter over the last week or so who disagree, who don't think that presentation is a valid or reliable proxy for learning. Now, I see where Tom Sherrington coming from. I do think he perhaps goes a bit far and I do think there are students with poorer presentation who do still demonstrate that engagement, commitment and deeper understanding. But one way i'd like to take on his ideas is thinking about the exercise book as a revision tool and having good organization and good presentation making revision much easier now the problem with externally created revision guides is they all cost money students don't know how to use them they aren't personalized to meet the needs of our students we don't know how they're used They're not always up to date, and they become a bit of a crutch for our teenagers, waving a copy of the latest glossy revision guide, which stays quite glossy. And it can be seen as a quick fix, as a tick box for our most disadvantaged students, without actually thinking more deeply about what is it exactly they need to be able to know more and remember more. Give them a revision guide, tick them a a box. On the other hand, the exercise book offers much better revision guide does not. It's personalized, it contains feedback and notes about what students did and didn't understand. It's full of up-to-date expert advice from teachers, their teachers. It's presented in the context of how they learnt the material in the first place, in the particular sequence in which they learned the material. It's organized in a way that makes sense to the, their teachers and to them and everything in it is necessary for their exam so if students bring their exercise book to every lesson if they take pride in it if they keep it neat if they keep it well organized and they act on their feedback surely it will help them perhaps it will stop them from discarding their exercise books at the end of a course so perhaps we should push the idea that students' exercise books should have intrinsic personal value if we want to get the best out of them. them. We should be pushing them as a revision tool, should we? Otherwise, why bother? Why bother to set out standards of presentation and neatness and organisation if those books are just going to be thrown away at the end of a course and replaced with a revision guide? That is the million-dollar question. Now, one solution might be to use booklets. Booklets as a solution to exercise books, as I say, it's what we do at Key Stage One and Key Stage Five, and this can help us when it comes to student presentation in terms of avoiding some of the issues with underlining dates of titles, in terms of setting out sort of a sort of hierarchy in which notes are to be kept, in terms of headings and subheadings. If we can do that for the students themselves, if we can scaffold it for the students themselves, then we're saving them a job, and actually, we are helping them with our organization. Now, I went on an interview last half term. I went um, to a school for a teacher of history interview. And I taught a year 12 lesson and I used booklets. Now, part of the feedback I received was that they didn't like the booklets as a method of delivering the content because they felt it inhibited the students too much. This is an interesting view, and if you'd said that to any of the teachers in my department, we'd have looked at you quite weirdly. But it's an interesting indicator as to how different schools have different approaches, and it depends on the student demographics, it depends on the teachers, it depends on their past experiences, it depends on what priority presentation is given, it depends on... and that's you know for teachers and the students and for SLT so perhaps there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to student presentation now I did want to finish with one final question I said I had two questions let's have one more I want to talk about different colored pens now regular listeners to our twitter spaces will know that in my department and in my faculty we are not told to market a particular color pen and we're not really held to account on whether students use purple pens to improve work, so long as they are improving their work and the visible improvements are evident. So as Nathan Ginn's horrified by, I marking in all manner of different coloured pens, red, green, purple, pink, blue, even pencils sometimes when I can't find anything else. And so I do want to question the use of purple pens by students. I do want to question whether, you know, teachers marking in green, does green really mean growth? Does red pen scare students off? And I've always held the view that I don't care what color pen students write in to do improvements, and I don't care what color I'm marking, so long as the marking's done, so long as it helps, you know, give feedback to the students that allows them to feed forward, and so long as students actually do the improvements themselves. I think purple pens are just for show. And actually, I think they detract from a point of feedback, which is to improve the student. Now, I know some people do have strong views, and I'm sure that some people do swear by purple pens. So if that is you, please do call in and tell me why I am wrong. I would love to hear from you. But that is where I'm going to end tonight's little view on student presentation and organisation. I suppose our organ- our overarching question is, does it really matter and the answer i suppose is yes it does matter to whom i think it should matter first and foremost to the students themselves i think student presentation is important and it's a way of showing that students do care about their work but i do think also that students can care about their work with slightly shoddy presentation i don't think it is you know, a given that poor presentation means a lack of care. I do think that some students need support with structuring notes, with, with organising their work, and I do think it's a role of a teacher to do that. But I don't think that the presentation of student books should be a stick with which to beat teachers around the head. now would you like to host your own teachers talk radio show you absolutely can we have an incredible team of hosts and you can be a part of it to join our hosts team all you need to do is send a dm to the twitter account at tt radio 2022 if you don't have twitter then you can send us an email to teacherstalkradio at gmail.com um and somebody probably me If it's the twitter account or tom rogers if it's the email we'll respond and we'll send you an information pack we're also launching a mentorship scheme so for your first few shows as many or as few as you need you will have access to an experienced host who will act as your mentor to guide you through the process of planning promoting and hosting your own 90 minute radio show we know that hosting can appear to be a daunting process and to some teachers, it might be off-putting, but at Teachers Talk Radio, we think there is so much talent out there in the Edu Twitter world, and we want to hear as many voices as we can on our shows. Now, talking of as many voices as we can here on our shows, tomorrow we have five fantastic hosts to guide you through the day. To start at 9am, it's Jaya Hirandani with a breakfast show, a Women Ed Asia special. They're pretty much all booked up between 1pm and 9.30pm. Khalil is on with Sunday lunch. Maud Warré makes her debut at 3pm with the afternoon show. Katie Clark's on at 5pm with the Twilight show with the one and only Daniel Mass. And at 8pm, it's all about assistive technology with another Tom, Tom Starkey. Now on Monday, you can tune in and listen to Tabitha McIntosh at 7am and Rebecca Ricketts at 4pm. And slap bang right in the middle, you have Tom Rogers with a very special morning break with Anne-Marie Williams talking about what educators need to know about autism. He had Pete Warn be on for a very similar show before, and that was a top listen. So I implore you to tune in at 11am if you can, or on demand, if like me you're teaching, and find out all about the work with Slack are doing in promoting what educators need to know about autism very very interesting now of course we've got lots of debut shows um to coming up which are very very exciting i'm just going to get up my list of shows so i can tell you who is going to be hosting a debut show in the future uh, we have Shaniqua, um, who's going to be hosting a monday late show very soon in april um Biseo is back she's back on the late Show. Um, on Tuesday and she's also going to be hosting as it stands the drive home on a Friday as well which is very very exciting Um, we have Henry Saunson who very soon is going to be hosting the Thursday Twilight show we have Nikki Cunningham who next Thursday will be hosting her debut late show Hadi Fatty had his very first late late show last Thursday do catch up on that it was a very good opening show and he'll be back um, next week on Thursday as well Paul Hamilton is hosting um, his very first Friday Late Show next Friday as well. Ed Clark will be hosting um, his very first Late Late Show in a couple of weeks' time um, on first Friday of April. Yasmin Omar is hosting the Saturday Breakfast Show on the 26th of March. Flora Cooper's moving to Saturday Brunch in a couple of weeks' time. Eugene McFadden, he of Badgerhead, be hosting on the first saturday of the month in april that's the twilight show and that i believe apart from Maud Worry as well who's hosting tomorrow on the afternoon show that is pretty much it so that's where i'm going to leave you for tonight thank you very much for tuning in whether you tuned in live or whether or not you tuned in on demand i shall see you in just over a month's time for another friday late late show tune in talk it out see you later